Hey, good morning. Everybody full of uh, food from last night and uh, whatever booze you were into? I'm just kidding, of course. Wake up. It's the beginning of the day. Brian is in the back. If you're not enthusiastic, he will beat you into enthusiasm. <laughs> Guys. So this is the vague panel funding. I'm assuming you're all here because you want Larry's money. Oh, <laughs> there's one. So... That's exactly right. Before we get going, just give us a, a show of hands of the mix of the room so we can try to be of maximum service to you as opposed to just blathering on about stuff. How many entrepreneurs in the room looking for money? Thank you. Okay. Let's see. What else is there? That looks like most of the room. <laughs> How many venture guys looking for deals? Oh, venture guys looking for deals. Okay. The guy in the back, that, you got to get him on your list. Okay. And what else have I missed? How many artists who are looking for money? Okay. So that's pretty much it. So we have a room full of entrepreneurs looking for money. So, a weird so what I'm going to do is, as you guys can read, obviously you've read the bios. I'm just going to give each of these folks one minute to tell you who they are. And we'll sort of jump into some, uh, I'll get the conversation going. But this is an interactive panel. If you've got questions, uh, want to call bullshit, any of that, just raise your hand or jump in. So let's go to the other end of the table to Carter. I'm Carter Laren. I guess I'm the one on the panel who's on both sides of this. I do do some angel investing, but I'm not looking for deals right now. Um, <laughs> and I also uh, am running a startup called Mox, which is, to give it a, a quick pitch here, is uh, basically what MTV would look like if it launched in 2013. A lot of people say that, but we're actually a television network online with music videos, news, artist interviews, all that kind of thing. So that'll be launching in about uh, a month at WMC. And the angel investing side, I'm the non-expert on the panel in terms of capital. I mostly get involved in stuff that I find exciting and founders that I think are interesting and get involved at all levels. Usually I can't help myself and end up rolling my sleeves up and doing a lot more work than probably most angels do, which is why I'm trying to limit what I'm doing right now because I'm I've got my own thing going on. So I guess that's that's the summary. Hi, uh, Christine Heron, work at Intel Capital. And probably here because I invest in companies that are relevant. So Common Sense Media, which is actually something I did at Omidyar Network, which I'm very excited. They fund, they go into evaluating content for children and what's the applicability of that. A couple of my current investments right now are Jelly, which does a streaming content service over broadcast radio, terrestrial radio. Um, that's both crowdsourced uh, from the app um, or through the web. They've also got that for advertising. So advertising is also real time with feedback. They're getting up to about a couple hundred stations in that network. And then a company called Store Envy, which is a social commerce site. They have a marketplace, which very soon will also be supporting uh, digital downloads. So it'll be a great way for artists to, to sell music directly. Hi, Larry Marcus, Walden Venture Capital. Um, I do sprout stage investing, so it's post-product. In terms of how to best get in front of me, I really love seeing the product. You know, seeing the demo is really um, sort of helps me really understand what you're doing uh, very rapidly, very clearly. In terms of the companies, I'm involved with Pandora, SoundHound, BandPage, Boombotics, Lyric Find and Swarm FM, among others. <laughs> so I'm Rachel Prophet. I'm the uh, lawyer on the panel. One too many, probably. So I spend days, nights, weekends representing startups, helping entrepreneurs figure out which end is up from sort of all the things of incorporation to figuring out when and how to go about approaching folks like these on the panel and sort of everything in between. I'm Mike LaSalle. I'm with Shamrock Capital Advisors. We're a little different from your traditional VC. We're a private equity firm that focuses solely on media entertainment communications. So about half our deals are traditional leverage buyouts, control type deals, and the other half are growth equity deals. So there are, when the company has real revenue on the way to being cash flow positive. Some relevant, we're constantly looking at deals within the music space, including buying old libraries and publishing assets or masters to uh, one of our current portfolio companies is uh, Isolation Network, which is the parent to Ingrus Fontana, which is um, the distributor of all universal music's business repertoire online and digitally in North America, and also for a lot of independent <laughs> artists and uh, independent labels. 
And uh, I'm Mark Montgomery. I'm mostly your moderator. I will jump in <laughs> occasionally. I'm also a little bit both. I do angel investing, not looking for deals, thank you. And I'm an entrepreneur and currently experimenting with the idea of uh, rather than planting seeds in a field, laying eggs and sitting on them. So less deals uh, with more control. Let, let's start with, I think, really the question that a lot of people in this room want to know, which is obviously how do we get an appointment with Larry, mm -hmm. but what, what do you guys look for? So I think all of us sitting up here have a set of characteristics that we're looking for in an entrepreneur. So why don't we start with the ladies and chat about what are those sort of two or three or four things that you're looking for when you're engaged in an early conversation, whether that's to invest or to sort of farm club somebody. Uh, so, so having come from uh, my last firm I was with was First Round Capital, which does exclusively seed stage investing. So I have a, a bit of a product bent on that, which is I'm looking for a good team, good product, and a good market, and you know some idea of how you'll do that customer acquisition. It'd be great to have all the things that you also want to see in a business, but realistically, <laughs> at the early stage, you know I just want a good product, good team, and some idea of how you'll get some customer acquisition. And from there, if you can take off, well, then you get your next round of funding and we're off to the races. So I'm not dissimilar. So I, when I'm sitting down meeting with a founding team, I absolutely want to know that there's people who are passionate about what they're doing. Because, you know, so I work with Wilson Sonsini. We represent companies from the guys with the business plan all the way up to the Googles and Yahoos of the world, hoping to start with you day one and grow to the end. I think that sort of that passion about what you're doing and actually a roadmap on how you're going to get there, sort of the best ideas are not uh, are not always going to materialize unless there's a plan. And so I'm looking at team and uh, yeah, kind of the vision for the market and execution strategy. Mike? Yeah, I mean, once they've gotten to that point where there's passion, where there's vision and all that stuff, for us, we're looking for real traction and real growth in the business. And so you've executed on your plan that you've told these guys that you were gonna go get, and now you need that extra step to kind of push it over the hump. And you're addressing it from the point of view of, here are the trends we are trying to take advantage of, and here's the unit economics that we're actually seeing in the business that makes sense. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when you actually look at the unit economics of whatever they're selling or whatever they're doing, and you pencil it out in the simplest terms, they actually don't pencil out. So you have to actually have a model that works and scales. So I really like to see a very breakthrough technology or product, and I want it to be done. So it's really not about the concepts. Um, I, I wanna actually physically see it working, and that's why the demo is so important, because I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to build your technology. I'm not a technologist per se. But when I see something that really creates that user joy, that delightful experience, you know, in whatever the target market is, that, that really speaks a lot to me. That's really the starting point. And then after that, it's important to realize that I don't do a lot of deals. I mean, it's literally, you know, a couple of deals a year. So it really takes some time to hear what it is that you're doing, understand what your plan is, you know, what your vision is. And you know, another key factor is, you know, how much progress have you really made? How efficient have you been? I, I really believe in sort of a smaller, more lean model. And if you've been able to make a lot of progress in small amounts of money, that's really important. If you've burned a ton of money and it's, you know, starting to look like, gee, convince me why it is that suddenly you're gonna become efficient and make a lot of progress. <laughs> That's just, it's just a much tougher sell. So that, you know, that efficiency and clarity is really, is really important. And if it seems confusing, if it seems like, you know, the product isn't quite working, you know, if it seems strange, you know, it really is strange. Um, and, you know, I'll show products to just, you know, people around my office and, and get their feedback because if they can't like it and it's in the consumer space, you know, that's, that's probably not a good sign, you know, if they're anywhere near the target market. Yeah, I mean, I'm not dissimilar from, I think, the other comments, but I get excited about ideas that are not just sort of little better than something else that's been out there or something that's, yeah, I think there's a lot of, I'm on AngelList and I see a lot of startups that are like, wow, that would be a cool feature if Twitter did it. 
but like that's not a product. And you know, you can hit big with those if you get lucky and the right person buys you or whatever. But to me, that's too risky and not exciting enough. I just I want something about which I can really be passionate. And that's stuff that tends to be you know revolutionary in some way or something that at least I think is revolutionary and new. And the other thing is, is market size matters to me a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of people solving really interesting problems in really clever ways, and the market size is, you know. Teeny. Yeah, $10 million. <laughs> it's like, okay, well. Ten people. Great. Like, I'm glad you can do that, and the five people in the world that you are doing that for will love you, but that's not a business. Well, and not a business study. Not a business I want to find, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah not, um, not all business. Some some business. Sure, <laughs> sure, but I'm, I'm less interested. So I think, you know, and I think a lot of people a lot of founders that I see get caught up in solving a problem that is really important to them without being able to look outside themselves and realize everyone is not like me, especially in the music industry. Like Everyone I talk to is a music nerd and all they focus on is like, I need to be able to get more deeper data about this and that. And it's like, you know what? 2% of music lovers read like blogs. <laughs> like You're not normal. <laughs> so... <laughs> Like, the, you're not, you like, so, I mean, those are the things that I look for. And, you know, fun, the last thing, which I think, you know, I've made errors before on all these fronts in investing, but, and the last thing is really founders. The team is important to me. The founder in particular is really important to me. I do want someone who's really passionate, but I don't want someone who's irrationally passionate. Mm -hmm. I want someone who can demonstrate that they will be able to change you know, you hated the word pivot before we had a conversation about that, but without, without using that word, they, they will be able to adapt because things are going to go wrong. It's never going to work the way that you said it's going to work. And if you are going to just, you know, double down on your bad bet from day one, that's not a good sign. I'd rather have someone realize like, oh, we're doing this and it's not working. I need to change what I'm doing. And someone who's constantly looking outside of themselves and aware of that. And that usually takes a founder who, in my opinion, can wear a lot of hats. I also kind of don't like founders who say, well, I do this thing and I need to hire someone to do all these other things. Yeah, you do need to hire those people eventually, but you should also be able to do them at some level yourself because especially early on, yeah. you can't just go hiring experts in every field in the world. It doesn't, it doesn't work well for my pocketbook. Jump in. You had something there. Oh, no, I was just responding to one of the things he was talking when you were talking about music nerds. And so I think one of the, I'm probably, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> Everyone on this is a music nerd except for me. I'm not sure. So Larry has a small yellow speaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, so I think I'm we're all music nerds. I'm <laughs> close to a music it's nerd. Kind of, I, I am 99% like on music for sure. So and so the 99%, I get in my car, I listen to the radio every time I'm in my car. If they're talking, I switch it to music. If I don't like the song that's playing, I hit scan or I you know flip through my stations. I think I buy music online at some irregular level. It's not really that often. I still rip CDs because <gasps> I like to have it. I like to have it. I'm a hoarder. So yeah, so I am you the 99% first. in many ways, uh, at least for my generation. Yeah. So I'll take that part. So just real quick, for me, it's always a bet on the jockey first. It's always the, it's always the founder for me. Y you, yeah. you can smell unstoppable on people. And then second, it's the idea, right? And, then, and there's a lot underneath that. But for me, it's always, it's always a bet on the person and the team first. Mark, I think you just had a great idea for a new scent. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. <laughs> Who can we pair that with, Larry? <laughs> oh, oh, entrepreneur. So um, let's talk a little bit more about, because uh, I heard the, the team a lot. So when you're looking, uh, and I know this sounds like just a, a stupid statement, but I'm, I'm amazed at how many technical companies show up without a technical co-founder to pitch for money. You want to talk about what the mix of an early team is? So at a Sprout stage, you assume they've got pretty substantial uh, uh, headcount, or not well, substantial, but. I mean, by definition, they've figured out how to build the product. Yeah, and right. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to remove a whole bunch of that technical risk. Yeah. Because there's a ton of great ideas, but it's really executing it in that, that simple, joyful manner that and takes so much. So I'd say if, you know, and look, not everything is about mind-melting technology. Sometimes it's about a mind-melting process or mm -hmm. making a system that's been very complicated, very simple. But technology, you know, matters a lot. And if you don't have a great, you know, really wonderful technically evolved person involved with your business, you know, you definitely need one, yeah. you know, pretty rapidly. Any, anyone else want to add on that? That's pretty clear, I think. 
I'm just happy to see my advice isn't wrong. When I see founding teams that come in without the technical guy, I say, well, it's great. You can kind of iterate a little bit on this, but you're going to need to go find someone who can go into these pitches with you and convince and just, folks that you're oh, viable. No, no. No, and me. just taking a little bit of a later stage view, it's, it is very important to have that technology person, but I want to put one adjective in front of it, a practical <laughs> technology <laughs> person. Because there are absolute <laughs> rock star rocket scientists out there, and we see them, and it's like they, they are much. on Mars, and they may be right about where it's going to be in the year 2070, but I need to exit by 2020, right? I need to be out 50 years earlier than that, and so it has to be very capable, but very practical or pragmatic, whatever you want to say. But yeah, I, I think I, that's crucial. Yeah, I, maybe I would even refine that. For yeah. me, that there's technical, but there's a product person, and that's a different yes, thing. That's, and that's you know, it. we're really big fans of the Stanford design cycle. And when someone comes in with a very analytical approach to developing product, and mm -hmm. they've got their shit together, that that goes a long way. I mean, you can have a lot of technical geniuses who, you know, there's a whole. You can tell when something's designed by an engineer, and it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to make it painfully explicit, if you do not have someone who knows to actually build the product on your team at the seed stage, and you haven't sold a company for at least a hundred million dollars before, you will not get funded. So yeah. just. That's what we were after. That's what. We're <laughs> Fine point. <laughs> so because I'm assuming that the product is there, I'm I'm always a bit more intrigued by the go-to-market strategy and how well do you really understand your user? I mean, how do you create joy in a user if you don't really know who they are? And you have to be really explicit about that, and you also have to be really smart about your marketing and your brand. You know, how do you not overexpose your brand to the wrong people too quickly? You know, how do you find that great burning core of initial users? Who are those people? And I'd much rather see you know, a hundred or a thousand really avid users than 50,000 users who came through because you had a little write-up and they just all churned through the service and it's not working anymore. So it's, do you really know your customers? And then can you provide them with something that's actually durable, that's going to be habit-forming, that it's, it's a, you know, going to be a part of their life in some way? And it's not just, uh, I used it once and it was a cool novelty. Some people like those businesses, but I, I don't like things that they don't seem to have real ultimate meaning to people in, in how they're going to experience whatever it is. Wow. So I have to ask this question just because it's going to be really funny. Carter? <laughs> <laughs> Carter is a really interesting sort of meandering angel investor. Would you tell us a little bit about your vibrator company? It's related to music. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, he's, he's, in a, he's in a vibrator company. It is related to music. It's a line of vibrators called Oh My Bod, and they vibrate to music. And there's a club version wow. that will vibrate to ambient music while you're out dancing. And we have a, another... Wait a minute. Can you go back for a minute while you're out dancing? Yeah. Yeah, it picks up the ambient music and vibrates. It's, uh, I, I guess I can use sex terms on this panel since you, you asked you can. It. It's an external clitoral stimulation vibe that slips into your panties, and it will... Uh, It'll vibrate to the music while you're out raving. Wow. Yeah. 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 All right. What's the URL for that? Yeah, there's... No. <laughs> Although that would be good. I think, there, I think there's a partnership. I know. Yeah. Did you bring samples? I'm wearing one now. I have. I have. <laughs> I did not want to think about that, Larry. So on that um, note, anybody got any questions? <laughs> now that we've taken it all the way down the hole, so to speak. Ooh, sorry. Any questions so far? To can top that? I don't know. We should should we stop now? Panel's over. Thank uh, you. The question was how important is pedigree and citing, you know, the the kid that comes out at 22 from Stanford, let's just say, goes to Google and just has that history doesn't necessarily have an independent success, but has that technical pedigree. How important is that? It's nice, it's not a requirement. So, you know, so for example, my, my most recently announced deal um, was Store Envy. Store Envy founder, John Crawford, you know, he's from the Midwest and he did go to college, but not anywhere that most hey, people in the Valley went to. What's wrong with the Midwest? Nothing is wrong with the Midwest. Yeah. Hey, I got Easy. a whole lot of Kansas Easy. people. 
<laughs> but my point is he's not like, you know, East Coast, you know, Ivy League. He didn't go to Stanford. He didn't, you know, he didn't check one of those boxes. And my most recent angel investment is a company called Supply Hog. <laughs> CEO, you know, Nathan Derrick. Uh, he's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Going to go back there. Didn't go to college. You know, rebuilt cars to get through high school. I mean, so it's absolutely not required. So that goes back to the passionate founder. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have to know what you're doing. You don't, and I don't believe going to college is not necessarily the check that says, hey, I'm smart because I went to this college. Um, but it helps. If someone went to Stanford, I don't have to work as hard to know that, yeah, they're probably not an idiot completely. You know. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a caveat to that yeah. a little bit, which yeah. is that, and so pet, pedigree matters a little bit, and part of it is the network, honestly. Um, but, uh, you know, I was a cryptographer for many years, and I was at a cryptography startup, and we would... Yeah, well, not, not so sexy. But... Um, we had a really tight relationship with a professor at a local well-known university um, who would send out the best PhD students that had come out of his, his little herd every year. Um, and we never once hired one of them. And the best cryptographers that we had were uh, a guy who didn't go to college, a guy who dropped out of high school. I mean, it was, it's, it's not that going to Stanford is a problem. It's, it's helpful. And it actually, there is there is some value there, but the thing that I care more about is a self-learner. And someone who's a self-learner who, who, it doesn't matter where they went and what the official curriculum was, they studied something of their own interest and got to be experts at it, that matters a lot more than where you went to school for me. I, I lived up here for a few years, briefly, and then <laughs> I, mo I moved to Los Angeles. And I think you have to watch it a little bit. I mean, this is, I think I'm the only person on the panel not not living in the Bay Area, but there is a little bit of Bay Area. If you didn't go to Cal or Stan especially Stanford, it's a not, a, or maybe we'll give you MIT and Harvard, maybe. Um, MIT. Yeah, MIT, yeah, but I mean, there's, it, it is so, it, it, you get a little bit into that, whipped up into that kind of frenzy here in the Bay Area that just doesn't exist other places. So, I mean, I think you have to remove yourself from kind of, Everybody here went to Stanford. Everybody here went to MIT. It just, it doesn't exist like that outside of Silicon Valley. And I know this is kind of where it all happens for a lot of things, but don't, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't get caught up into it. I'll put it that way. Uh, I was curious to hear a little more. It seems like Larry has an idea that's a little bit at odds with something you said, Carter, not to disagree with either of you, but no, wanting good. more information about, yeah, go for it, about you saying, you know, not everyone's like me, right? Go and seek out your personas or your target market that's expansive to a certain extent. And then Larry saying, find your, your burning core of devotees. <laughs> And me looking at some marketing research that says, you know, it's kind of the 80-20 or the 90-10 of super fans, people who are spending the most money in the space. So I'm just wondering if you guys Yeah, could I don't actually think there's, I mean, I hate to not have a fight, but I don't actually think there's a contradiction there. I mean, I, I think what Larry is talking about is strategy for, you know, if, if that set of burning fans is all that you'll ever have, and maybe Larry can correct me. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if that burning set is all you're ever going to have, because that's the totality of the market, that's a problem. Yeah. But um, if the market can be a lot bigger, you first cultivate that burning set of fans because they're going to help. They're going to bleed into the rest of that market and kind of do your own work for you. It's well said. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they should be a proxy for the broader market. I've got, I've got kind of a um, very specific question that's not specifically about investment so much, but there's this thing in the music technology space with B2B services where the second B is sometimes a company, a business, and a lot of times it's an artist. And there's a very weird disconnect between the needs of an independent artist and a more advanced uh, yeah, business. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious if, you, if any of you have experience or feedback about how you sort of, like if you want to be the ubiquitous service in the music industry for a business service, how do you sort of address both the independent artist and the, the business and, and work? I mean, do those have to be two separate companies, one that serves the indie artist and one that serves the business, or? May I? This, uh, okay, so I built a company that had that dilemma and the answer is you can't serve both. So I think when you're dealing with an enterprise client like Kanye West or Keith Urban or fill in the blank, they have a to they have number one they have a different set of needs. Number two, they are playing at a different level financially. And when you look at the totality of their online enterprise businesses compared to what they get paid to do one show, 
it's a drop in the bucket, right? So, and then on the other end, you have the independent artist who has a different set of needs. They have a different financial situation and they have a, they have a different market they serve. So, so their problem is obscurity, right? Where Kanye West's problem is the, the actually the opposite. They, Kanye's got too much to do and not enough time. Right. So I think that, that you, and, and quite frankly, if I, you know, I, as an investor, I look for companies that are in the enterprise side. So, you know, Reverb Nation's a great service. I wouldn't want to be an investor in Reverb Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would want to be an, an investor in someone who's serving that sort of top 2% of the market because there's a lot of money to be made there. Yeah. I mean, as an example with Isolation Network, which in grooves, yeah. if you guys know that business, we actually encounter this exact issue, right? So second largest shareholder of InGrooves, Isolation Network, is Universal Music. Why? Because we are the entire digital supply chain for Universal Music. That is a very different proposition and a very different service level and what they need. Sometimes they don't need some of the stuff. They need a lot more of certain things and they don't need other things than the InGrooves Fontana side, which is serving independent labels. And then to even splice it further, we have in residence, which is serving independent artists who don't want to be with a label. And we've basically put all three, they all use a shared technology platform. There's shared services there, but you cannot, the same guy can't serve all three of those because they are three very distinct markets, even from the independent artists to the independent label. You're using the same technology for all three markets. Yes, but there's different needs for it, right? You build a big, pl- you build a platform and basically you build a platform for, you know, that's, if, if for Universal, it's the enterprise, and that's going to be able to serve everything anybody needs from a technology point of view. But now the independent artist or the independent label needs services on top of that that Universal may not need, or they may need a bell and whistle here and there, or certain they may need our our business development to go cut a deal with services where Universal can cut a deal s- separate. So it's more on that service layer on top of it that you need to really be on it. By the way, best pants here today by far. So I'll just just to mix it up, I'll just I'll just disagree uh, completely um, for two reasons. Let's first, arm wrestle. First is that we're talking about the future, not the present, and it's all about disruption. So if you can really articulate why you can serve the the big bands of the future, I mean, and you can grow with them, that's very powerful. Obviously, the, the really big bands are in their own league. But then again, you also have an industry that is just in complete transition. And I think that artists are going to be getting paid in very different ways than they're getting paid now. So that's something that everybody loves, which is more money. And uh, if you can figure out how to help them get paid and solve the broader need, particularly of the emerging artists, I think there's, there's something very interesting there. But it's really about your plan and how you're going to execute on it or what you've actually accomplished. I don't necessarily think it's generic. Yes, at later stages, you know, do you need to have focus? Sure. But uh, things are definitely changing very rapidly out there. Larry, I'm wondering if um, maybe you can extend kind of that conversation a little bit more because back in the East Coast, there have been some prominent... VCs who have kind of come out and said that uh, they won't invest in music tech, like Fred Wilson and David Pakman. And so uh, what, what do you see that's changing? And uh, where are the opportunities going to be? Well, I mean, we actually were talking about this general subject you know, of music licensing, which I think is really what's, what's driving those comments you know, from Fred and David. But if you're licensing your your music and you're going to have to spend your money up front in order to even be in business and you don't have real certainty longer term of what your licensing is going to look like that is fundamentally not venture fundable and that's a bit of the catch 22 that's going on in the music business today with with startups who actually want to sell music in some form and i think there's definitely some shifts from the label side realizing that you need to have an ecosystem of innovation in order to really compete and bring your you know your wares to the market but it's a slow move and i don't think that it's you know kind of hit a point where there's really 
you know, clarity in any sense, you know, from the big labels, how this is all going to work. But I think there's a lot more desire to try to figure it out. You know, I have a ton of different music deals because they've all either figured out how to not do licensing and solve different parts of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. or they've figured out how to do very, you know, creative licensing. You know, Pandora is using statutory licensing, so it doesn't have to do the, those individual deals. Lyric Find is actually aggregating licenses from thousands of, of publishers around the lyric space and then empowering startups. So there's just huge friction in between there and they're solving that kind of problem. And then there's just huge other pieces of the ecosystem around, I mean, there's gear, there's education, all sorts of exciting things in production. And then there's just a lot of other community. And, and look at all the major companies, look at Apple and Google and Amazon. They're all using music essentially as a lost leader as a part of their other services. Why shouldn't it ultimately be a profit center, not a loss leader? And if the industry would grow the pie and think about growing the pie, I think a lot of really good things would happen. But in the meantime, a lot of exciting companies that I think are, are figuring out the issue. Get, get your pens ready. So I'm going to ask each of you guys, what, where's, the, where's the white space in the, in the space? So what are, those, what are those problems that you think need to be solved? Give a couple of specific areas of things that if it walked in the door, you'd go, holy shit, I got to jump on that right now. That's not really my job. I'm not, I'm not trying to invent what other people are going to invent I, in front of them. I mean, I have ideas of things that I think are exciting, and then somebody shows up. I mean, I had that happen to me at Meetem. Um, there's something I've really been thinking about, and an entrepreneur showed up, and he pitched it to me, and it's really intriguing, and I'm taking that conversation to the next level. But... You know, it's really about what it is you want to manifest, what you think it's going to be. And if it sounds like it's the same thing that everybody else is doing, you know, it's not that interesting. But I think, I think the whole education side is really interesting. I mean, the impact of, uh, like, I think music gear can be really interesting. You know, I have a PA and, and a studio and all that, and there's just so much useless gear and signal flow. You know, it's ridiculous. I think I'd love to solve the whole thing with a button. And there should be some great ways to do that. I mean, why do all mixes live sound like crap? You know, why is the bass player mixing from behind the PA? A lot of things don't make sense. People buy a lot of gear. And gear can be a really good business. And it's a business that hasn't really changed very much in a long time. But, you know, an iPad can actually do a lot of things better than a lot of the stuff that we all probably own. Anybody else want to take a whack at white space? Come on, you want to do it. I know you do. If Larry can't do it, I mean. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I would say, so I, I tend to not focus on like specifically inside music, what's the disruption? And I'm not the music expert to pick that out. I'm just supposed to pattern match when one of you guys figures it out. That's my job. So please hurry up. The, uh, <laughs> I got money to be made for all of us. So, uh, but what I can tell you is some of the categories, you know, where I think disruption is happening that more broadly. So, um, you know, our team's been very interested in what's happening with context awareness and what does that mean as far as you've got this dense little package of sensors and radios in your pockets. What magic can you generate with what's going to come out of those sensors and radios? That'd be really interesting. Um, I'm very interested in uh, people having a personalized experience, whether that's recommendations or referrals or, and that might be restaurants or music or whatever that is and how do you make that actionable is there a transaction you can bundle in um also very interested in uh, persistent experience so you're on your laptop you're um, at some you know desktop at the office you're using your phone you're on your ipad whatever it is do you have some persistent experience with persistent access to some information that's unique to you Um, those are some areas that i think very disruptive things are happening um you know car technology you know things like that can you touch those with music absolutely and but i'm not going to tell you exactly how that's your job how many of you guys in the room are are doing curation ideas okay um how about persistent experience i'm i'm looking for your next investment (laughs) there's one there's a persistent experience person two three okay other questions go it's a bottom line funding question. Somebody knocks on your door and says, I need X amount of money, a million dollars. 
and sometimes the question is, well, why do you need a million dollars? What have you done so far to get to this point where you need a million? Have you done friends and family? Have you done angel round? Have you ponied up a little bit of cash? How much of your cash have you invested? How do you approach that conversation? Just, just the, I need this much money. With an, with an investor? Is that? Correct. Okay. And what should the investor, or what should the uh, entrepreneur be ha what should they have in their bag of tricks before they come up with a figure? I think there is a misperception around probably what we all do, and, and especially in venture capital, you know, at the earlier stages, and that there's a view that it's a very long-term business, and we're investing in really long-term things. So yes, the average holding period of an investment is longer than the average marriage. You know, I think it's, <laughs> you know, five, seven years. So you're really, you know, engaged with, with the companies for a long period of time. But what we're actually funding is the next six to 12 months. What is that focused plan that you're gonna do? So I think the real answer to the question is, you know, what are you gonna do in the next year and what do you need to accomplish it? And if that makes a lot of sense, that's where I think you have chance of actually being funded, whatever that amount is. So I, um, I work with a bunch of foundations and, and philanthropists that are funding, you know, nonprofit organizations. It's a different type of space. I'm curious. I know, Christine, you mentioned you worked at Omid Yar. Yeah, I did the media strategy there. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah. I'm just curious about for the rest of you, do you all ever fund sort of nonprofit type projects or projects that are social enterprises that are not intended to make a profit but are in some way serving the community or creativity or freedom of expression or you know policy advocacy for stuff that all of the other investor uh, investees would would benefit from um speaking for me the answer is yes um and what i'm looking for um i tend to follow those investments for a period of time before i put money or time into them um in my case uh, i have two one is the center for entrepreneurship in nashville tennessee which is about building our ecosystem up um, rising all the boats and the other is the W.O. Smith School of Music, which educates children for 50 cents a lesson and fundamentally alters their life in a way that's miraculous. Uh, and so for me, it's all about what kind of impact it actually has to, to the end user, whoever that is. I mean, most professional investors are going to tell you no. Um, because the, you know, there's a whole separate lesson on how venture capital works, but but typically you're, it's no different than you know that you know the Harvard endowment is going to go you know put money into a mutual fund. They're going to go put money into you know benchmark or whatever to make a return. So it can't really go to nonprofits, which is different from an individual person being passionate about a particular category. So um, if you're talking to venture firms, maybe individual partners, but certainly not the firm. Yeah, I just as a as the individual person. Um, I can get excited about causes like that. I typically don't invest if the person doesn't aren't, isn't looking for a profit. Um, not because, I mean, in some cases, not because I'm trying to make a profit, but because my experience has been um, nonprofits are inefficient. And if the person is not thinking about how to make money, they're also not thinking about how to use money efficiently. Um, and I don't like investing in inefficient things. So um, I've found I've found businesses who maybe have a nonprofit component to them or maybe a social good component to them um, and they're doing something really good, but they're also trying to make money. And that to me matters because it, it means the right person is running the business and it'll it's less likely to just flop. Well, and, and I was just going to call out, I mean, nonprofit is just a tax status, right? There's yeah. nothing about being a nonprofit that says you need to take charitable donations, right? It's just a tax status and you demonstrate you do social good. You can be a nonprofit and not pay taxes. That's basically it. Um, so like Common Sense Media, great example, you know, our initial um, uh, grant to them was four and a half million dollars. We put that in and they were on a very specific plan for becoming, you know, self-sufficient, you know, getting revenue from cable companies, you know, getting revenue from the site, like things like that. So that's something else to think about. And I, th I think folks like Carter, you know, they're going to respond to that. Yeah, that that's way better for me than yeah. I need, you know, I'm just trying to do good, and I'm going to keep getting donations forever. That doesn't work for me. Not as, not as fun. So I'm on the board of the Jazz School in Berkeley. Great organization. It's a nonprofit, and I'll do stuff like that personally. But, you know, no investor is going to do anything in their fund that isn't about right. generating returns. I mean, that's that, right. we're an asset class, and that's what we're here to do. There is that dispassionate side of it. I want to go – can I go back to your question for a minute uh, related to – 
um, you know, pitching for, for money. And in full disclosure, I am an investor in this. But if you go to um, bestpitchdex.com, that was built on a platform called, called popular.me in less than an hour by our CEO. Every great pitch deck um, over the last, so Facebook's per, first pitch deck is there. Um, Next Big Sounds, Seed Camp, Foursquare. You want to look at how to pitch? There's a site with a bunch of decks that you should go look at. Um, yeah, can, can I contradict you just for a minute? Not that, not that that's not important, and yeah. it is. Um, it is. I actually think you're the first two to five minutes where you're speaking verbally without a deck are more important than your deck. Um, if you can't hook me really quickly verbally, mm -hmm. I don't give a shit about your deck, and you, I'll never see it. So you really need to get you need to get your you need to get your pitch down really well in that that first few few minutes. And, and I would agree with that. The other thing I'd say is is if you have a great deck, it's not more than about twelve slides. Yeah, the appendix is your friend. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, but of course I prepared a detailed slide on that. <laughs> not everyone wants to see it though. <laughs> we got a we got a he's a been he's had, he's had his hand up off and on for. A, a quick question. Typically, um, especially for you, Larry, what 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 does it cost someone? You know, in terms of what they have to give up to, you know, to get an early stage investment. I'd say a, a typical investment round ranges probably twenty to forty percent dilution in general. I mean, if you looked across the industry, you know, at the different ranges, and and that frankly, you know, tends to go for for the different rounds, which is part of why it's really important to make a lot of progress because you want to either prevent raising those rounds or make enough progress that you, uh, you know, have minimal capital uh, to have that dilution. So I'll jump in here too and add my two cents, which is this is a, a good plug for having good advisors. So whether that's legal counsel or someone else who's sort of on your side, not that everybody here is not kind of on your side, but as an entrepreneur, I think that's, I mean, very similar to the question I get often of how do I make sure I'm prepared, right? The next question is how can I protect myself from losing my company too soon? So it's definitely a, um, it's definitely a conversation to have early and often with whomever you can trust to have that discussion. But, you know, that's often why we start having conversations about maybe I should do some convertible notes and do sort of other things. So I don't have to set a valuation right now because if I don't set a valuation right now, then I can put off sort of the inevitable giving away a large chunk of my company. Yeah, exactly. But to his point, right? I mean, if there's if there's more there there, then you can drive a higher valuation and hopefully protect that. Now, I should obviously say the obvious point, which is at some point you will lose control. It's just a quick question of when and how and when you're ready to do that. <laughs> Some folks are so desperate for money at the time that they need it and they've kind of got folks lined up to write the check that they're willing to take that at any cost. The problem is you can't ever get that back, right? So it's an important it's an important decision point. Yeah, and the, the one thing I would say about that is 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 there's a there's a big difference between money and and smart money. Absolutely. So be very careful about who your investors are, particularly early. Because they will derail you faster than you can say derail. <laughs> Tons of it. Um, so typically, when you guys come in, uh, do you normally do like a debt round or equity? What do you normally do at that stage, uh, specifically you, Larry? I, I always do equity rounds, just a, a priced, uh, clean terms uh, equity round. And I don't, I don't like notes in particular uh, because... There's um, because they're not priced. I feel like we can actually be adverse to the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to get involved and work on building value, and then work on finding the later partner. Not, you know, have somebody sitting across the table and saying, "Gee, uh, we should take you want to take this other investor because they have a lower price, and I I really want them because I think they're a better partner." And those are just difficult conversations to have, but. If you're going to take a note, you know, and that's very typical, uh, you know, seed rounds to just be a note with a cap, which is frankly the same thing, you know, as equity, depending on how the, the cap is priced and uh, what the terms of conversion are when, when it actually comes due, you know, upon maturity. So, and maturity comes up, you know, pretty quickly. So thinking through it, that really means you know, matters a lot because suddenly you end up with a bunch of angel investors, you know, owning the equity in your business and then that's where you are. I, I just want to 
emphasize something that Larry mentioned at the beginning here, which was an alignment of interests. I think you see a lot of times where owner founders, whatever you want to call them, the management team has been taught to basically drive the hardest deal or specific issues here and there. The reality is the goal of the deal, no matter what round it is, is to be fair, obviously, but to also have alignment of interest at your board level, your investor level, and your management team. It sounds so obvious, but there's so many structures that we see coming in on a D round or whatever later, where you look at what happened on the A, B, and C, and you're like, what happened here? Of course, you know, there, it, it's a disaster for you. As a management team, you should not worry about picking up that last penny off the table and driving the hardest bargain. You should find the investors that are like-minded and cut a deal where your incentives are somewhat aligned. That is gonna make life so much easier. Well, to Larry's point earlier, it's like a marriage, right? Yeah, And that's the counseling absolutely. we often give, right? You need to find the right partner and you need to make sure that you are going in the same direction, in the same boat, um, because that breaks down really quickly. And honestly, once they've invested in your company, like there's no real out, right? I mean, it's, you're, kind of, you're kind of with them. So you wanna spend time picking those folks well. Yeah, I think having great counsel is actually really important. I've, I've been a part of multiple deals where the first thing was actually redoing all the corporate documents um, <laughs> because they were messed up. And I know it's not that doesn't seem that interesting to form your company versus building your product, mm -hmm. but when it's formed incorrectly, it's just amazing how much time you spend dealing with it. And then the other thing. Uh, it hurts your ability to actually raise capital because things fall apart in legal due diligence, which is a pretty real, you know, portion of the whole process. You didn't even pay him for that plug. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and on exit. I mean, when yeah, you think about when you're when you're actually in a transaction and they go, um, we're missing fill in the blank, and you're like, ah, you know, yeah. scrambling to find that piece of the package that's holding up the deal. Whew. It's a nightmare. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I've actually had several folks come back from pitching VCs and angels, et cetera, and they say, well, it was really nice when they asked the question about, you know, who we've been working with or how we've been doing it. They can just check the box like, oh, okay, good. You've got, you know, one of the five folks in Silicon Valley that does this regularly. So we don't even have to think that that's going to be a problem versus, oh, I had my, you know, uncle's brother-in-law helping me and they live in, you know, Arkansas and it should be fine, right? Then all their alarm bells go off and they think, well, I probably that house is not in order. So we need to solve that. So it does help. Not only is that house not in order, it'll be a nightmare to do the deal with them. Fair I mean, enough, yeah. that is that is a disaster from our point of view. Whenever like in in a loft, the guy from Arkansas, someone's uncle is representing the other side. Forget that they formed the company; right. that's a disaster. But if they're still there, it's even worse, still there on the other side, yeah. it's even worse because you will spend days, hours, weeks negotiating things that don't make any sense. That's true. And to be honest, we'll walk from that. It's not, life's too short. And you can't find lawyers in the Valley who will even take equity or yeah. kind of work with you as a startup. So it's not impossible to get off of the Arkansas lawyer problem. And you can find that, you can find that anywhere. You can find a good lawyer in any market who's smart who'll take some equity in exchange. Yeah. Well, we, you, we got another one right here. Go. How important is it um, how much money I've raised before? So if I come with a great idea, some cool product that's been built, but basically bootstrap that myself, Puts in, put in some 50 grand on myself, had two rockstar engineers to build that and it works. And I would be asking for a million dollars. Would you say, well, first do some angel rounds and get some $200,000 here and there and then come back? Or would you not say that's a problem? Do you not? How important is that aspect of how I went through that normal step of um, raising money here and there, that normal way before I actually address VCs at some point? Are shortcuts okay to you? Yeah, it's irrelevant. I mean, basically, people want to know how much progress have you made with the business, and progress with the business means, you know, how how is the product? Have you got customers yet? How many? If so, uh, do you have revenue yet? How much? If so, um, those are the things we care about, not what funding strategy you use to get there. Unless some, you did something bad with the funding strategy that makes it messy. Um, but certainly the, the total dollars invested, if it's too little, never going to be an issue. In fact, we're very excited that you're capital efficient. Um, if you have too much, that might present an issue because then you might, you know, the valuations might not make sense. Um, so that could be problematic. But never Just too little is never a problem. Yeah, talk a more. yeah, but talk a yeah. little talk a little about that. Talk about um, an overvaluation and the potential for problems later. 
Yeah, so so probably every person here has not invested in a deal um, because of valuation issues. Um, you know, so let's say I've looked at a company and I really I might really like the business, but the valuation they had at their last time of investment, I might think that that was actually more than it's worth today. I might think that maybe today it's worth the same as it was then because the last set of investors uh, overpriced what it was worth, or maybe the market changed since then. And so it's it's a difficult conversation to have, you know, to go to the entrepreneur and say, I'd love to give you a term sheet, but I don't know that you'll take it because if I give you a term sheet, the valuation is going to be here and your last valuation was here or here. Um, so you're going to have issues with, uh, if your investors, there's something called anti-dilution where your investors get more shares to make up for the fact that you lowered the price. <laughs> um, so their anti-dilution is your extra dilution. Um, so, uh, there's that, there's, you know, sometimes other people are like, no, just keep going. We'll find someone else. You know, that's not the real price. Um, so, so a lot of those deals I've, I've had to walk away from if I don't, have a valuation agreement um, and often that comes because someone raised a lot of money they didn't need and so they increased the valuation accordingly so that they wouldn't have to sell as much of the company um, and so that range of 20 to 40 percent is you know that's the right range uh, and often there's some Cortland when someone says how much money do you need to tell the next story to get to the next phase um, you want to have an honest answer and don't just raise some big amount of money that then influences your valuation and then screws you up next time you know, it's all sort of get a smart advisor because they're all these things are, are closely related. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so the Shark Tank, uh, how has that distorted how people approach you? Because <laughs> I was just approached last week to get casted for a new show on uh, a major network for my brother and my company, and I turned it down because I feel like the Shark Tank is a total gimmick. And I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I love the show. I mean, I was yeah, watching it, we watched it last night. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's our job, faster and meaner. <laughs> yeah, or not. But, but, but I think what I think it really shows, which is key, is just how little time you really have to express what you do yeah. and, and get that product in front of them. And when, when things make sense, they really react to it. I think that what's, there's a bit of an American Idol aspect to it. I think the fact that they're on Shark Tank and they're getting the 15 or 20 million viewers yeah is just naturally gonna help anything they look at. And they're also incredibly cheap. I'd say by, by Valley standards, they're getting you know, very good deals mm -hmm. because of, of the dynamic that exists there. They're, they're definitely ultra value players. But I think, I think it's great. I love the show. Yeah. It's, it's basically it's not a paid promotion, right? And I've seen the yeah. contract that they give when they you know, make you an offer. And uh, you don't have to take it, even though you say yes on the show. Um, you don't have to take money in exchange for appearing on the show. So uh, I had one of my angel companies got invited to appear. And I was like, go, do it, do it. Are you kidding? How about that big audience? Yeah. Um, but they're afraid they'll get, you know. Take 5% regardless, though. Uh, only if, if they don't necessarily. I've seen different contracts. Yeah. This contract for me was a little bit worse. Yeah. Right, so. Yeah. Well, bottom line is entrepreneurship is the new rock and roll. So yeah. inevitably, um, you know, play the game. It's a game and you have to decide, uh, w you know, what lane you want to run in. And sometimes that works for people and sometimes it doesn't. End. That was the end button. Guys, thank you very much. Give a b big round of applause to our very smart people. And have fun today. Make sure you say, tell Brian Zisk you love this panel. <laughs>